ambitious with this portion of Scripture. So if you're here normally, Sunday by Sunday at LCPC, you're used to the ministers working in a certain way with Scripture, aren't you? Is that right? That we will, yeah, in a long history of tradition, we'll try and break up a portion of Scripture into three points We'll try and apply it like that. I think we've got to be ambitious given the nature of what we've got here. So I'm not going to do that today. Instead, this morning, what I want us to think about and notice are five uh, details about the Nazarites. Okay, now immediately you might be put off by that. Don't be. Because it's not just this morning five points about the Nazarites. It's five points about the Nazarites that are very pertinent and applicable to your life. If you're a Christian, do you see it? Not just five historical little details, but five things we can take from the Nazarites into our own life and our own living for Jesus Christ today. So five things this morning. Okay, so can I ask you to please have your Bible open? We all got that? Turn back to number six. I'll give you the page number 114, Numbers chapter six. Have we all got it there? Even the boys and girls, I know they've got the worksheet to do. But if you keep one eye, boys and girls, on your worksheet and one eye on the Bible, I don't know what that'll mean for your coloring, but you get the idea. Okay, let's have number six open in front of us as we think firstly, and we notice firstly, comprehensive holiness. Everyone got it? Comprehensive holiness. It's the first time we've got to think about it. Okay, where are we going to start with this? I think we've got to start by stating and appreciating that vows were a very important part of life in the ancient world, certainly under the old covenant. Do we all realize that? We do, don't we? Vows are important. Like, not only does God allow for vows in Leviticus, in the Leviticus Code, But you know as well as I do, I hope, that there's a lot of instances of vows right throughout the Bible, aren't there? Can you think of any right now? Jacob makes a vow. Who else makes a vow? We could go for Hannah makes a vow. There's lots of others. Okay, so uh, does that mean that all we're dealing with this morning in Numbers chapter 6, is it just another instance of a vow? Is that all that this Nazarite stuff is? Is it just another one of these? Lots of, it's not. Have a look at verse 1 with me. Let's, let's go there. Look at verse 1. Do, do you see what's said? You'll see that the, the Nazarites were people who undertook what the Bible calls... Do you notice how the Bible speaks about it? God speaks about it as a special thing. Do you see that? It's a special vow. So in the original, it's the idea of something really unique. Okay, so this is real. This is not like any of the other vows. This is really special, really quite an unusual thing that we're dealing with. So how about this? That's what we'll do. Let's try and get a definition of the Nazarites. I think that'll help us as we move forward. Um, see if you can get this, especially if you're taking... So what are we dealing with? What were the Nazarites? Listen. The Nazarites were men or women, which I'm thankful for, given the sort of gender warfare we had last week with the test of adultery, if you're here. So the, the Nazarites were men or women who voluntarily and most often temporarily they entered into a vow where through abstinence they devoted themselves to God. I'll say it again. 
right? So men or women who voluntarily, often temporarily, they entered a vow where through abstinence they devoted themselves to God. Now you might be thinking, that's really wordy, that's a bit of an intense definition. The thing that I want you to pick out of it is the fact that the Nazarites devoted themselves to God. Now, do you see the distinction that I'm making there? Do you see it? Unlike in other portions of the Bible, what did people do? They they vowed other stuff to God. What did Hannah do in 1 Samuel? Do we know the story? What does she vow to God? She vows her son to God. And elsewhere in the Bible, people vow produce to God or finance to God. Do you see the point I'm making here? That's not what we're dealing with with the Nazarites. What did they do? They devoted... They dedicated themselves. And you've got to understand, like, it's just totally comprehensive. It's like all-encompassing. Everything that they were is dedicated over to God as part of this vow. Now, if you're with me, do do you not already kind of find that kind of interesting and fascinating? The idea that people in Israel, in this camp we've been looking at for the last number of weeks, they're kind of taking on voluntarily almost a priestly kind of status. They're set apart in everything for God. I find that really interesting. But the fundamental thing that I want you to appreciate and hear from me just now is the function that the Nazarites therefore would have played in that camp. Because I look around this morning, and most of you were here for last week, weren't you? The test of adultery. Now, do you remember, if you were here last week, what we said about marriage? Do you remember? We said marriage was a metaphor. Now, now, do you remember? We said that marriage was this kind of living picture. Do you remember that? It's a living picture of God's unfaithfulness to his... Do you remember that? Do you not this morning see that the very same thing is going on here with Nazarites? A living picture. Do you see it? Come on, with me on this. In Exodus chapter 19, God reveals that his people, his entire people, are to be a kingdom of priests. So it's not just some people from one tribe that are priests. God's, all of God's people, kingdom of priests. And do you see now what God does? Do you see what he's doing in establishing these Nazarites? He's giving them a living picture of the calling that he has placed on their lives. Do you see it? Like as these people wander around a camp and they look and they see one of these easily recognizable Nazarites, what happens? They look at them and they remember the calling that's on their lives. What does God want from me? And they remember, like these people, I am to be given over in absolutely everything I am, everything I have given over in devotion to God. It's a living picture for the old covenant people. Now, as we think about just for a moment, this comprehensive holiness, let's apply it. I wonder if you've heard the name uh, Ligon Duncan. Does that name ring a bell? I think it will do for quite a few. Actually, I should give him his proper name, because it's a great name. We've had Joe Pug, which is a terrible name. But this is the Reverend Dr. Ligon Duncan III. Oh, what a name like that. It's a great name. Now, he's a famous American preacher. He writes about these Nazarites, and he says this. I'll paraphrase Ligon Duncan. He says that the Nazarites are not just a living picture, 
for the Old Testament people. That the Nazarites are to serve and function as a mirror for us. Don't you love it? And don't you see it? Like what is actually supposed to happen this morning is you come into church, you pick up your Bible, you look into Numbers chapter 6 and you see Nazarites. What, what's happening? What should happen is that you see yourself in the Nazarites and you see the calling as a Christian that is on your life. Do you recognize it or not? Do you see it? Like you and I make such a basic error all the time that we sort of think about designating certain areas of our life to God. Don't we think like that? Like, what do we give to God? We give Sunday to God, maybe? Do we? Sunday morning we give to God. Some of the mornings during the week, maybe we'll read a few little verses and we give that to God. And do you see how wrong that is? We, like these people, we, you and I as Christians, we are to be people who are set apart in everything for God. Everything in your life. Everything you have. Everything you are. So your ambitions and your relationships and your finances, your hopes and your dreams, your work life, your fam, everything that you are dedicated, dedicated comprehensively to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the point? We look into number six this morning. Who do you see? Who you ought to see is yourself. Okay, so comprehensive holiness. Second thing we see here, follow me, is that we see costly holiness. Costly holiness. Because as we move on, what I want you to appreciate and notice is that to be a Nazarite and to be under the conditions of this vow, it, it, was, it was an expensive business. Cost was involved and a price had to be paid here to be a Nazarite. Um, to show you what I mean, given that we're talking about cost, let's think about, about it in terms of two sides of a coin. So the first thing we've got to see is that there was an actually, there was a, a literal cost to being a Nazarite. Can I ask you to do this, to work with me and to look at verse 13 or try and find verse 13? Even the boys and girls, keep an eye on verse 13 and what follows. Do you find it? So even if you just scan from verse 13 onwards, I think you can all appreciate that at the end, like to be a Nazarite, at the end of the Nazarite vow, when your vow comes to an end, remember I said it was temporary, at the end of it, you, if you were a Nazarite, you had to offer sacrifices to God. Everyone pick up on that from verse 13 to the end? So you get the idea, you finish the vow... You come into the the tabernacle, stand before God, and there's all these sacrifices that I have to meet. Right? Now, everyone can appreciate that. What you might not pick up on in the reading is just the incredible quantity of sacrifices that the Nazarite had to make. And really, it's mind-blowing if you look at the detail that to be a Nazarite, you needed to offer... More sacrifices than at nearly any other point in the Israelite calendar. Did you hear that? So if you're going to be a Nazarite, to be a part of this vow, you have to offer more offerings than even at the ordination of the high priest. Like there's loads and loads and loads and loads. Do you see the point I'm making to you? That's expensive. Like really expensive. 
Like here to be a Nazarite, it spells out that you have to offer at least three flawless, spotless rams. Those were the Bentleys of the ancient world. Like they cost a phenomenal amount of money. Do you see the first side of the coin? There's actually a literal cost involved here. But then second side of the coin, we've got to think about the figurative cost of being a a Nazarite. And I guess that everyone in the room, from the youngest to the oldest here, you must have noticed that that there were three areas of abstinence. Did everyone get it? You did, right? We we all got that there were three areas of abstinence. In fact, you could probably say them back to me. Because they were quite extreme, were they? Because it's not just wine. It's not abstaining from wine. Like, you have to appreciate that wine was the symbol of joy in the ancient world, for obvious reasons maybe, but wine's the symbol of joy. But the Nazarites aren't just to abstain from wine, are they? Did you notice? They've got to abstain from any grape-based product at all. Okay, do you see? It's to the nth degree. And then they don't just abstain from a razor, do they? These Nazarites have to grow their hair really, really long. And then everyone look at verse 6. Because doesn't this one get you? What's the third area? Look at it, man. These Nazarites weren't just to avoid contact with the dead. Look at this. They're even to avoid burying their own family. So you see, don't you, what I mean when I'm talking about a figurative cost in the name of following God, in the name of holiness, not only do they have to refrain from the areas of pleasure that all the people around them enjoy, what do they have to do? These people have to be willing to cause offense. Isn't that it? Don't you think so? Like, not burying your own mum, not burying your own dad or your own child. Did you see it? I mean, these people have to be willing to upset their nearest and all in the name of loyalty, devotion, love, God. And again, I have to say to you, there's application here, is there not? Because I never ever want it said in this church, ever want it said, that following the Lord Jesus Christ is easy. I mean, that is a message that you hear in contemporary Christianity, isn't it? You know, come to Jesus Christ and things will be sorted for you. Things will be easy. Things will be straightforward. It will be a breeze if you just come to Jesus Christ. Well, if you're new to church, maybe that is the case for you. Maybe it's just been a few weeks, a few months that you've been attending church. I need you to hear really loudly, clearly get this, get it, hear it. There is a genuine cost to following the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a significant cost to following Jesus. And those who have been Christians for any length of time know that to be true, don't you? What's the cost of following Jesus? Well, you could say there's a literal cost of following Jesus. We're supposed to open our wallets, are we not? And support the the work of the church. You could say that, but the other side is much harder. You and I have to be willing to cause in the name of Jesus. Isn't that the hardest thing in the world? That we too, like these people, in the name of following the Lord Jesus Christ and being devoted to our God, we have to be willing to upset our nearest and dearest. Perhaps upsetting families, perhaps upsetting friends, and those we love the most. We see here comprehensive holiness, but we also see, we also see costly holiness too. 
Okay, third thing we see is observable holiness. Observable holiness. And at this point, I'm just going to embarrass myself. I must love you to put myself through such embarrassment. So, um, when I first became a Christian, when I first became a Christian, um, I was in a band. I was a musician at the time when I first became a Christian. You know one of those really cheesy guys where they just live for music and uh, all their friends are musicians and all they talk about is music and they've got they think they've got their life mapped out in front of them and they're going to be some f- like famous musicians you know those really cheesy pe- I was one of those really cheesy people and you have to appreciate as well that I looked the part if I didn't sound the part okay so I uh, had uh, bright, shiny, uh, silver flares. <laughs> Not joking. Told you it was embarrassing. So bright, shiny, silver flares, which I still have. And uh, long hair and the guitar and the microphone and all that. Incredibly embarrassing. So what happened? Um, well, I just got sick of people nagging me is what happened, really. You know, like people coming to me and saying, oh, Andy, you're a Christian now. You cannot look like that. You know, you, you're a Christian. You cannot have this long hair and these shiny silver flares. And I got sick of it. So eventually what I did was just cut all my hair off. Okay. And do you know what I wish? I wish I had known my Bible better. Because you see what I could have done. Oh, you can't be devoted to, to God and have long hair. I come on, you know, I could have pointed to Numbers chapter 6. But it all does bring us, doesn't it, to the question we're asking. I'm asking the question, or I was, why do they have to have long hair? Right? Why do these Nazarites, to enter into this valley, why do they have... Are you not asking that question? Were you not asking that question? Well, like, part of it, at least, is the symbolism of hair in the ancient world. We know, don't we, that hair continues to grow after death for a short period of time. Well, because of that, in the ancient world, hair was a symbol of the life force of a person in the ancient world. Hair, the symbol of life force. So do you see the idea, though? Do you see it? Why do they let their hair grow? As this, again, a symbol of devoting everything to God. You know, the life force over God, everything I am is God's, you see? So there's that. There's another more important element here. So hear it. Why did they grow their hair long? As a badge, an outward badge of them being set apart for God. Do you see it? They let their hair grow and they let their hair grow and they let their hair grow. So it was observable. It became an emblem, a sign of the fact that these were set apart, that these were holy people. And come on, for the third time, are we not faced with application? I mean, see in verse 5, the word that is used for their hair is the same word that the high priest, that was used of the high priest's headset, his headpiece, his crown, the very thing that demonstrated him to be set apart and whole, set apart and holy. I mean, do we not see application? Isn't this challenging for us here? The same thing, true of the Nazarites, 
is to be true for you and for me. Not that we are to grow our hair long, but that our holiness is supposed to be observable to other people. That just as these Nazarites walking around the camp, that they were easily recognizable as people under the conditions of this vow. Do you know what's got to be true of you? As you work, walk around the workplace and you walk in your families and you, you, you live out your life in London, your holiness, you being set apart for God, is supposed to be identifiable, is supposed to be observable. And aren't you with me? Isn't that just the most challenging idea under the sun for us, isn't it? To be recognizable as holy? I mean, should it not spark some sort of self-assessment in us today? Can you say that? Could that be said of you? Would the people in your life say that of you? Yes, that person is recognizable. They are set apart. They are wholly set over to God. Would that be said of you? Would it be said of me? And even think of the fruit of the Spirit. Would people say that of you? Would they say that love and peace and patience and joy and kindness and goodness, listen, and faithfulness? And would they say gentleness? And would they say self-control? Would they say that these are identifiable characteristics of you in your life? And if you're a Christian in here and you're saying, no, no, they wouldn't, Surely it sparks prayer, doesn't it? The end of the service we pray. Today we pray. This week we pray and we ask God for help. We ask God to help us to demonstrate this fundamental calling that he has placed on our life to be dedicated in everything we are to Christ. So we've seen comprehensive holiness, costly holiness, observable holiness. The fourth thing we see is Failed holiness. Failed holiness. So we're nearly there, okay? We are in the fourth of five points this morning. So I think it's right to take stock. And I want to turn it over to you uh, just now. And just ask you, what do you think of the Nazarites? You know, we're right into this. Four of five points. We're right into this text. Near the end. What do you think of the Nazarites as you look at it? Are you with me that these are impressive people do you not agree with that like think about it like people who are willing to change their lives about in quite dramatic ways to change and abstain and refrain from stuff like sometimes for years and years and years all out of devotion to god you're not with me like that's quite these these guys are impressive these Men and women are very, very impressive people. I think, anyway, I'm sure you agree. So because of that, what I'm going to say next, what I'm going to say next might come as a surprise and a shock to you. Hear it. These Nazarites were failures. These Nazarites failed. How dare I say that? Sounds really harsh, doesn't it? So, how can I say that? Well, first you must have noticed we were told of the possibility of accidental defilement. Look with me to verse 9, please. Have a look at verse 9. You see from verse 9 to verse 12, you've got the section that deals with the, the reality that the Nazarites could accidentally slip up. Couldn't they? Did you notice it? 
So they could just be lying in bed and somebody dies beside them. They could be, you know, they could come in contact with a, a corpse accidentally and become defiled and become ceremonially unclean. Now here's the point I'm making. Their holiness could not be guaranteed. Do you see it? They could accidentally become defiled before God. That's one element of it. But the other element is, I ask you again to consider the sacrifices at the end of the vow. Because does that not blow your mind? Blows my mind. Like, think what we're saying here. You've all just agreed with me that these are really impressive people, aren't they? I mean, imagine it. Like, some of these people gave over de- decades of their life to, to dedication to God. Like, this vow didn't last a day or two days. Sometimes, literally, decades and decades of setting them apart. I mean, how holy are they? Like, they're holier than the priests. The priests were allowed to drink wine sometimes. The priests were allowed to bury their dead. These people are the, are, are you with the purest of the pure so set apart for God, so holy. And then you think about that. What do they have to do in order to stand safely in the presence of God? Did you see? Look at the end of verse 14. What do they have to do? They still have to offer sacrifices for sin. After all that he have done for decades in the name of devotion in God that holiness is still not enough these Nazarites are not able to enter freely into the tabernacle they're not able to stand safely before God after all of this and so surely what we're confronted with here is a lesson about our hearts, your heart, my heart and the total depravity of man you see it don't you the reality that no matter how hard you and I try, no matter how much effort we put into being devoted to God, in and of ourselves, attaining sufficient holiness for a relationship with God, it's beyond us. It's above us, no matter how hard we try. Like these Nazarites, what does humanity need? We need a sacrifice for sin. But we need desperately a holiness from elsewhere. We need a holiness from outside ourselves. Not even the Nazarites can stand safely before God. So what's the thing we need? Do you know what we need? We need a last point. We need a last point, okay? wonder if you got them. Comprehensive holiness, costly holiness, observable holiness, failed holiness. And you're not going to believe the last one. The last one. Ready? With your pen, if you're taking notes. Typological holiness. And if you're visiting this morning, you're thinking, this guy's lost the plot. A typological holiness. But for the rest of the congregation, they know because we mentioned it two, three weeks ago. Do you remember? What's typology? It's when we recognize that things in the Old Testament, they exist ultimately. Why? To point us to Jesus. Things in the Old Testament, they exist to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I close all of this this morning by really asking you sincerely, when you look at number six, do you see him?
When you open number six, are we reading the book of Numbers properly? Yeah. You look at number six, do you see who is Jesus' friend? You'd say back to me, but he is the sacrifice for sin that's needed. You would all, I hope and pray you would all say that. But who is Jesus? He is the ultimate Nazarite. Isn't he? I mean, think about our Lord. Who is Jesus? He's the one from his very birth, Scripture tells us, was set apart for God. Do you see set apart? Set apart not in outward symbols, but set apart in holiness of, of heart. Is that not the Lord Jesus Christ? And who is Jesus? But he is the one who has abstained, isn't he? He is the one from, from who's refrained. He has abstained from personal glory. Abstained from pursuing honor, pursuing personal ambition. Why? So that he can be dedicated in everything to the will of his Father. And that alone? And who is Jesus Christ? Is he not the one who has paid the cost of our holiness? And not just with like three spots, rams, not like becoming the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Isn't that right? Paid the price, the real cost through his own spilt blood. And then I say to you, who is Jesus? As you look at that, and he is the one who has stood out in the camp. Isn't he? And how? Because of his perfection, because of his righteousness, because of his holiness, because of his ultimately sinless life. What do you see when you look at number six? I want you to understand you ought to yourself and your calling and your life as a Christian. But who do you see in this portion of scripture? You surely see the ultimate Nazarite. You see Jesus. Have you never ever asked why it is that the Lord Jesus Christ had to come from the lowliest town in Galilee? They never asked, why did he have to be brought up in such a lowly place? Also that what was said, the prophets would be true. That the Lord Jesus Christ, he would be called a Nazarene. That he would be called one who is set apart in all things, set apart for the glory and the honor of his father. And I end, I speak to you, if you're not a Christian, because for the second week in the trot, the third week in the trot, the fourth week in the trot, the fifth week in the trot, do you know what God is doing in this portion of scripture? He's confronting you with your utter desperate need. I mean, do you not see it? Do you not see it in the Nazarites? Do you not see that unless you secure righteousness from Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, you will never ever stand safely in the presence of God, you will never have relationship with the Almighty outside of that righteousness. So what do you need to do today? I'll tell you this, you do not need to become a Sunday Christian. But this morning, this Sunday, you do need to come to Christ Jesus. You need to fall on your knees, you need to bow to him, repentance and belief. And through him, because of him, in him become like the rest of the church set apart in everything that we are and set apart for the glory of God let's bow our heads and let's pray gracious God we have seen in a definition of the Nazarites that they entered into this vow on a voluntary 
basis. We thank you that as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was set apart, that this is also true of our Lord and Savior, voluntarily dying for us, voluntarily living for us in, in the humiliation that that drew. But we also saw in the definition that the Nazarite vow was usually, usually temporary. And we rejoice in how that is true of Christ Jesus. He's been set apart in this ministry. And then he's raised. The Lord Jesus Christ now ascends to glory and majesty at the Father's right hand. We rejoice that at this moment, our Savior, you pray for your people. We ask, pray for those who do not know Christ in here, that you would give them eternal life by your Holy Spirit. And we pray all for your name's sake. And we pray in your name. Amen.